We have all had painful events in our lives that can lead to depression, anxiety, addiction, or broken relationships. But here's a secret. It is not about what happened to us that causes suffering. It's the stories we believe about ourselves. Join us as we shine light on how to rewrite our stories, avoid the shadows of shame, and travel along the pathway to joy, love, and connection. It's the Finding Peace Podcast with your host, Amazon best-selling author, Troy L. Love. I was adopted at the age of five days old. I've always known this. My parents raised me with the knowledge that I was adopted and I wore it as a badge of honor. I told everyone I met, Hi, I'm Troy. I'm adopted. My adoption was a closed adoption. That's the way they did things back then. My parents told me that my birth mother was young, that she had gotten pregnant, and that my father left when he found out she was pregnant, and that she didn't have the financial means to raise me on her own, so she made a special choice to love me enough to give me up for adoption. I'm sure that my parents told me on numerous occasions about being adopted, but one time in particular, I remember visiting my grandmother who worked in the local hospital. We were sitting in the cafeteria where I had just picked out wherever I wanted from the food line and I sat down at one of the formica and wooden tables laid out in the dining area. My mother and my grandmother told me adoption means special love. They even told me that Jesus was adopted by Joseph, so I must be really special. It wasn't until I was nearly 35 years old that I realized that amid all of that truth that adoption means special love, there was also pain. I was curled up on my therapist's couch discussing what I now call attachment wounds when my therapist pointed out that even though I was given away for loving reasons, it still felt like abandonment. I had spent nine months in my birth mother's womb. I had heard her voice, her heartbeat steadily beating a rhythm that provided life and connection to me. When I was born, the nurses whisked me away as soon as I popped out. They put me in a cradle and rolled me away to the nursery where I lay for five days until my parents came to pick me up. My birth mother never got to touch my face. She never even was told that I was a boy. The first home that we lived in was an apartment above the mortuary. My parents had a large blue vase that as a, as a toddler in a, a walker, I would pull all the way back and then run into it as fast as I could till it eventually broke. The apartment was decorated in the traditional 70s colors of browns and yellows. It was a home of love, but there was also rage. My earliest memory, and one of the few memories that I have of my childhood, is at the age of three years old, hiding under the kitchen table, screaming in terror as I watched my father throw my mother across the room. There was a lot of domestic violence and a lot of rage, and the fighting between my parents continued throughout my entire life. When I was five, I sat in the second-to-last booth on the right wall of our local Mongolian barbecue restaurant. I sat with my parents with my back to the door. I remember the seats were fake red leather. They stuck to my legs. My parents told me that they were going to get a divorce. They asked me who I wanted to live with. I told them I wanted to live with my dad because he buys me stuff. It wouldn't be the last time my parents told me they were getting a divorce. 
They told me they were getting divorced when I was in the sixth grade, in the ninth grade, and as a senior in high school, and they meant at that time. One of the common patterns of domestic violence is that the father takes his anger and frustration out on the mother. The mother, in turn, takes her feelings of powerlessness and anger out on the children. I didn't want either of my parents to be mad at me, and so amid the fighting of my parents, I was the kid who tried to be perfect. I did my best to follow all of the rules and to be obedient. And when my mother was angry with me or my brother, she would spank us. First, she used her hand, but her hurt her so badly that she then resorted to wooden spoons. When they kept breaking, she found a three and a half inch thick plastic dowel and used that. I realize now that she had attachment wounds of betrayal and abuse, but didn't know how to find the healing necessary, and my father had his own wounds of abuse and rejection. These wounds ran deep for both of them. My first exposure to pornography was when I was five. I was standing in the office of the owner of an auto junkyard while my father was negotiating buying radiators so he could sell them for more money somewhere else. It was his side job that he had. The man's office was plastered with naked women on the walls, a desk piled with papers all over it, and a glass tank in the corner with a live rattlesnake that the man kept as a pet. I can clearly recall the naked pictures of blonde, well-endowed women staring wantingly into the eyes of a very curious, very nervous five-year-old boy. I think back now on that experience and realize that my little brain had no ability whatsoever to process what I was looking at. I just remember a mixture of feeling excited and yucky all at the same time, and my father never talked to me about what I saw. My mom talked to me about sex once when I was in the fifth grade after I found a tampon that I had pulled out in front of her friends. I found this wrapped up thing that I thought was a sucker. I pulled it out and, and my mom was talking to some friends and I said, Mom, what's this? And she's like, oh, oh, and she hurried and grabbed it and shoved it in her purse. And then later on, I was given the sex talk when I was in the fifth grade. My second exposure to porn was when I was nine years old. I found a Playboy calendar stashed behind the seat of my dad's old blue pickup truck. I discovered the calendar by accident, and that same feeling of curiosity, excitement, and shame all rushed back. I flipped quickly through all the images before shoving it back where I found it so that I wouldn't get caught. Somewhere between the two experiences, I was also sexually molested by a neighbor boy, I really don't recall any of the details about that experience, but my mother told me that it happened, and I recognized that the first experience of finding porn and the second experience of finding porn and being sexually molested somewhere in between really negatively affected the way that I viewed sex and sexuality. It was confusing. It was something that had to be kept a secret, something we shouldn't talk about. I should hide my feelings and shove them away like I did the Playboy calendar. When I was in the fifth grade, my best friend Matt, who had lived just up the street in a white house across the street from a J.C. Park, moved away. He and I had been best friends since the second grade. We'd walk to and home from school every day, and he was my best friend. He moved to some place I had never heard of and I thought it was super far away. I never thought I'd ever see him again. Other friends also moved away. There was a pattern developing in my life. 
these individuals that I grew closest to would move away. My wound of abandonment caused in infancy was starting to be torn open further. I began to develop a negative belief system that said, friends never stay, they move away. A message that my shadows of shame continue to point out to this day. I entered middle school. The school felt massive compared to my little elementary school. I had to figure out how to use the lockers and move from classroom to classroom. I was required to take gym. I dreaded gym. Gym is where it was blatantly obvious that I did not belong. Many of the boys were starting to step into puberty. I noticed many of them growing hair in their armpits. I was still very small and skinny and very hairless. My hand-eye coordination was awful. Hitting a birdie with a badminton racket or making a basket with a ball were tasks paramount to climbing Mount Everest for me. I failed at every attempt. The boys noticed. In elementary school, I was called Troy Troy the Lover Boy, but in middle school, I was called gay, faggot, femme, fudge packer, cocksucker, among other things. I was depanced and slugged on more than one occasion. The name calling happened every day for three years, particularly when I was standing in line waiting for gym class to get over. Boys terrified me. I felt unwelcome around them. I felt inferior. I felt unwanted. The abandonment wound of rejection was created in middle school, and I developed a negative belief system that said there is something wrong with me. I am not good enough. During middle school, I began to look around the classroom to find out whether there was anyone that looked like me. I had determined that my birth mother lived somewhere nearby, and by now she must have gotten married and had some children. Maybe her children were attending my school. Maybe one of the fellow students was my brother or sister. I even made up stories to my classmates, all a parent trap, that I had gone away to summer camp and found my twin brother. The idea that I was alone began to set in more deeply and I was fantasizing that I wasn't alone. I started to feel like an alien who had been plopped from some outer space planet. Unfortunately, the planet I came from did not provide me with any special powers nor superhuman strength. One day, when I was 14 years old, a friend asked me if I knew what masturbation was. I had no idea. He proceeded to explain to me, and then begged me not to try it. He told me that I wouldn't be able to stop. But that night, I went home, and I tried it. And it was the most amazing feeling that I had ever felt. It seemed to soothe my wounds of rejection, abandonment, and loss. I had to feel it again. And so I did it again the next night, and then the next night after that, and the next night after that. My friend was right. I couldn't stop. I tried so hard to stop, but I couldn't seem to do it. After the few times that I started doing it, this feeling of shame would wash over me afterwards. No one had ever talked to me about whether it was right or wrong, but it felt wrong to me. Unfortunately, I couldn't seem to stop it. A few minutes later, I'm sitting in my ecclesiastical leader's office. I notice that there's two pictures of shepherds and sheep standing in a field. The seats are green and covered with this like carpety kind of woven texture. He's sitting across from me from his mahogany desk and it's clean. He asks me with a loving smile if I know what masturbation is and I pretended not to know. He then tried to explain it as gently as he could and then he asked me if I had ever 
tried that, and I lied. There are a few moments in my life that I wish I could do over, and this is one of them. Had I told him yes, he probably would have been able to help me stop, but I was afraid that he was going to tell me that I was bad and that I wasn't ever allowed to come back to church anymore, and so I lied. In high school, I went with my choir to Disneyland. The motel we stayed in had the musty smell, orange bedding, and uncomfortable pillows. It also had porn available to watch on the television. The message said I could watch it for the first 10 minutes without being charged. I had never seen a porn movie before, and so I was alone in my room, and I decided to check it out. I turned it off before the 10 minutes ended so that my teachers wouldn't know. I felt so ashamed and so guilty afterwards that I went outside and I looked for some of my fellow students and asked if they wanted to read scriptures with me. In fact, as I was reading my senior high school yearbooks, one of the girls wrote in there how wonderful of a moment that was. It was a spiritual moment and I must be a really spiritual guy that I was willing to call everybody over to have scripture study. Oh, the hypocrisy. My shadows of shame shouted that I was the most horrible kid ever and that if anyone ever found out, they would all think that I was disgusting. And so I kept it a secret. Between the ages of 16 to 18, I battled depression and I wanted to die. I wrote about suicide in my journals. I even attempted it once. I felt like I was the worst kid in the school and yet I tried so hard to make sure that everyone thought that I was one of the most righteous and good kids ever. When I graduated high school, I abandoned my friends. I've discovered we often inflict pain on other people based on the wounds that we suffer from ourselves. I turned my back on everything. I pulled away. I shut down. I went away for two years before coming home. When I arrived home in 1995, the internet had just been available for a short time. My parents had divorced. I was living with my mother in my old room with red carpet and this glow-in-the-dark stickers that I had put on the ceiling a few years before. I enrolled in college at the local university. My mom bought me a computer to help me with my schoolwork, and it came with an AOL account. Within three months, I had discovered that porn was available online, and my addictive behaviors took a deeper and darker step. Around the same time, I met my wife. I knew her from high school, but at the time, I was a sophomore in high school and she was a senior, so there was no chance at all that we were ever going to get together. Like, if somebody had told me that we were going to get married, I would have thought that they were crazy. But I ran into her again when she was passing out some flyers on campus to people to have them join a committee that she was on. And we began talking and discovered that we had a lot in common. We started dating and then we got engaged, and I told her that I had a problem with masturbation. I did not tell her that I had a problem with porn. I was pretty certain that after we got married, this would all go away and everything would be fine. That was not true. About six months into our marriage, my wife caught me viewing porn and just like that, a betrayal wound had been created. A cyclical pattern of me looking, hiding, lying, and finally confessing began. I graduated from college with a bachelor's in social work. We moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I pursued my master's in social work. 
My addiction continued to escalate. I found myself searching out erotic literature at the library, looking at porn on public school computers, and even rode a bus to downtown Pittsburgh to go to an adult movie house. I never went in, but I paced in front of it for several minutes before I got too scared and got back on the bus and went home. I continued to betray my wife and wound her deeply. Every time I acted out, I went into a deeper sense of shame, reinforcing the beliefs that I was not worthy of love, acceptance, or belonging, and that there was something seriously wrong with me. And as the deeper my shame became, the more deeply I would look to porn to comfort me rather than turning to my wife. It was an awful, debilitating cycle. I finally spoke with my bishop, who happened to be a recovering alcoholic. He understood what addiction was. I had never even heard of that term, really. He understood that I could not beat this alone. He sent me to a therapist, and she understood more about the nature of addiction and encouraged me to attend a 12-step meeting specifically for porn addiction. I went. Only me and one other guy showed up. Because nobody else attended, the meeting was eventually canceled. At the same time, as part of my degree, I was sent to do an internship at Allegheny Rehabilitation Center. I was sitting in a large group room, a mini fridge in the corner, posters about chemical addiction all over the walls, and a door that led outside to a green field across the street. Several men and women sat in a circle, all of whom were battling chemical addiction. One of the first assignments that they were given when they would show up to group was to write about the story about how they ended up in rehab. Even though I had never done drugs, I was shocked by how much I could relate to them. I learned about the concepts of addiction and quickly became aware that I fit every criteria of an addict, trapped in a vicious cycle, unable to stop, even though it was hurting me, my wife, and my life. And as a result, my life was completely beginning to unravel. It opened my eyes to a new world, and it gave me hope that I could change. After graduation, we moved to Yuma. I imagined that moving away would give us a fresh start. Oh, that was wistful thinking. Within a few months, I had acted out again. Unfortunately, at that time, there were no 12-step meetings for sexual addiction and no therapist in town that specialized in treating my issue. Through prayer and a lot of white knuckling, I was able to go longer and longer without looking at porn or acting out, but I would eventually relapse and it was crash and burn, that same cycle of hiding, pretending that I had nothing was wrong, lying to my wife, finally confessing, that cycle was continuing to happen. And the repercussions of my behavior on my wife cannot be underestimated. She began to have nightmares. She began to have increased anxiety. In fact, she started to have PTSD symptoms. She would worry constantly. She didn't feel safe in our own home. She couldn't trust me. Her world was shattered. With each year, my acting out would spread out to be longer and longer. Lisa and I had been trying to have children the whole time that we got married, but it wasn't happening. For nine years, we struggled with infertility and we were finally faced with the decision to try in vitro fertilization or to go without children. We chose to do in vitro. I was sitting in a room. The whole process of in vitro was long and, and that's a story for another time, but I remember the day when my wife's eggs were gonna be fertilized. I was sitting in the room where the men provide 
semen that they used to fertilize the eggs my wife had just produced. I'm sitting there alone. There are porn magazines and a porn slideshow showing on the television. I closed my eyes and I told myself, I do not want to bring a child into the world in this environment. This is not how I want to bring a child into the world. So I knelt down on my knees and I pleaded with God to help me. This isn't the first time that I had prayed to God asking me to help me stop, but somehow this felt different. I could not bring this issue into the lives of my children. I could not do it. And so I turned off the television, turned over the magazines, and nine months later my daughter was born. The last time I masturbated was over 13 years ago, and the last time I went searching for porn was about the same time. I started counseling again. I found a therapist out of state who would do therapy over the phone with me. There were still no 12-step meetings for me for sexual addiction to attend, and it honestly didn't cross my mind that I should go to an AA meeting, but I did begin to participate in groups. I began attending healing retreats. I spent thousands of dollars in therapy and retreats and literature, and I began to understand how healing from attachment wounds happen. As I stopped the porn and masturbation, I thought that things would get easier. Unfortunately, they didn't. In fact, I became angrier and angrier. I had stopped the numbing behaviors, and I was beginning to feel. I had no tools to cope with what was coming up, because I had been suppressing that for decades. I was not a pleasant person to live with. I was impossible to live with. I could see the destruction that my previous behaviors had had on my wife. I could see that her self-worth had been shattered. I felt horrible about myself. My new battle was not with addiction now. It was with the shadows of shame. I continued with therapy and retreats. I learned how destructive shame can be. I was surrounded by a group of men at a retreat. I was standing on a carpet that had been duct taped to the ground in a cabin normally used for arts and crafts at a kid's summer camp. I was invited to work on one of my attachment wounds. I picked rejection. The men did a form of psychodrama where we reenacted re the bullies of my past. They were yelling at me, calling the names that I had been called since middle school. And it struck me then that there was a part of me that had accepted that message. There was something wrong with me that I wasn't enough. I had accepted the message and I was angry with them because not only did it hurt, but because part of me believed it. I was angry with them. I was angry at myself. I had accepted that I was a loser. I was unlovable. I was disgusting. I finally had to look at my shadows of shame. I had to confront the negative core beliefs that I had tattooed all over my heart and I began to heal. I developed a model for how healing takes place. I started sharing it with my clients. A new client would come into my office and sit on my couch. They would share with me that they were battling an addiction or depression or anxiety or that their marriage was falling apart. They would share that they were suffering. I would pull out a crude circle drawing that I had made on a large piece of white poster board. Nearly every time, a client could identify with the wounds of abandonment, rejection, loss, neglect, betrayal, or abuse. They could understand and identify with negative core beliefs about themselves that they had carried for years. They could identify the shadows of shame. They could identify ways in which they were numbing. And as they saw that, we could lay out a path to peace and healing. I'm standing up in front of a handful of couples who had come for a weekend couples retreat. 
The projector had a nicely drawn version of the finding piece model on it, and I'm explaining how it works. A man raises his hand and asks, Where can I read more about this? It's as if he had asked me how to solve world hunger. I had been learning about this for nearly 20 years. I could have given him a list of hundreds of books that I had read. I could have told him to go to therapy, but he was already in therapy. And so I stood there not having a clue of what to say. And one of the women in the room said, you should write a book about this. And so I did. It's called Finding Peace. The Amazon best-selling book Finding Peace is a fusion of a fictional storyline of eight group members and a group therapist and a workbook that describes the core of peace, a model on healing from attachment wounds that I've been talking about. This book has been written for anyone who's serious about healing their attachment wounds and ready to become honest about changing their life. It's for people who are willing to become vulnerable and find a way to heal. Finding Peace is available at most online booksellers or by going to TroyLLove.com. The reason why I wrote that book is because of the story, my story, that I've lived. I've been able to experience a lot of healing and change in my life over the years, and I continue to work on it. I'm not perfect, but I've learned that I am worthy of love and belonging. I've learned that I matter and that the people in my world matter too. I've learned that connections are vitally important, and I've learned how to heal my attachment wounds in a way so that I can find more greater joy and peace and love in my life, and I hope the same for you. You've been listening to the Finding Peace podcast. If we added value to your life, let us know or give us a rating. Before you go, subscribe to the show and get new episodes as soon as they are published. Thank you for spending part of your journey with us. And don't forget to grab your free copy of the Amazon best-selling book, The Art of Peace, by going to www.troyllove.com. Copyright Finding Peace Consulting.